Well, I think the dance goes something like this. I need three or four men to come up here. Well, that'd be entertaining, wouldn't it? Well, we're grateful for uh, these songs that we've sung that kind of get our head around uh, some Israeli-type culture and uh, Jewish flavor, as uh, Joe uh, called it. And uh, we've been talking about uh, the people of God in this series. The people of God, Israel, the church, and God's plan for his own is what we've been looking at this month uh, from Romans chapters uh, 9 through 11. And... Um, I can just imagine as we grapple with this whole issue of Israel and knowing that this passage is right here in a letter written to the believers who lived in the city of Rome, uh, that this was a question, the question that we have, what is the relationship God has with Israel? That's a question that must have existed uh, 2,000 years ago in the church, uh, in the Roman church, because Paul addresses this uh, very issue. I can imagine, in fact, that he might have gotten an an email along the way uh, from somebody in Rome just saying, hey... Paul, I was just, you know, studying the scriptures and thinking about some things, and, and I was just wondering, um, is God going to keep his promises to Israel? I mean, I know the Old Testament, I know some of the things that have been said there, and then I kind of see God working almost exclusively with Gentiles, and the Jews kind of rejecting the whole thing. So, Paul, I got this question, because I think it matters that we understand what God's relationship to Israel today is. I think it matters that we understand how God's going to be working with the Jewish people. In fact, I'm going to go so far as to say this for us here today. The question of God's relationship with Israel today is really a question about God's trustworthiness. It's a question about God's reliability, his faithfulness. It's a question about God's integrity. Will God keep his promises to me? Will God keep his promises to Israel? You see, if God fails to do what he said he would do, then God is not who he said he is, and my faith is in vain. But if God does what he said he would do, listen to me, because this is where it comes right down to me right now, right where I'm sitting, right what I'm going through this week. You see, if God keeps his promises, then I'm going to be all right. Because God's going to keep me. And no one, no one, and nothing in this world will keep me from laying down my life and living it out for him day by day, no matter the circumstances, no matter the consequences I face for my own decisions, God can be trusted. It's exactly what we're going to see in the text today. We're going to read in Romans chapter 11. We've already kind of worked our way through Romans 9 and 10. In Romans chapter 11, I'm just going to read a few verses for us here today from this chapter, beginning at verse 1. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they've killed your prophets, they've demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. What is God's reply to him? I've kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. 
so too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Over to verse 25. Lest you, Romans, he's speaking to now, lest you be wise in your own conceits, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon all Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Let's pray with that in our minds. Father, I thank you so much that we can open your word. We can ask a question concerning your trustworthiness. God, can we trust you today? I thank you, Father, that even in asking the question, your grace is sufficient for us and is poured out on us that we are not consumed. You are so patient to hear our questions and to answer them in a way that brings us life. Father, I thank you for the echo of these last words that we just read from your, uh, from your word. Father, the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. I thank you, God, that we can rest on that here this morning. Whatever change needs to go on in our minds, in our hearts, in our spirits, Father, do that work here. May your spirit fall upon this place, upon every hearer that you would be pleased with what you see in this place i pray in christ's name amen all right we're talking about the trustworthiness of god is he reliable i can trust god's perfect plan for me do you believe that trust the plan can you trust god's perfect plan for you Today, this week, this month, this year, whatever you got going on in your life, whether good or bad, can you trust God's plan? Well, here's the first thing we need to look at. We're going to spend some time here because I know God has not forgotten his promises to his people. That's why I can trust God's perfect plan. God has not forgotten his promises to his people. We see this in the first couple of verses. We understand that there remains in God's plan... Some kind of work that's going to be done with the nation of Israel. Do I know for sure what that looks like? Answer, somebody want to help me? No, I don't. Now I want to say at this point, I, I haven't got it all figured out, and I want to say that the scriptures speak so specifically to the issues of my own life. They provide every answer that I need for all matters of life and godliness. But there are many details that God does not give us concerning how things are going to roll out in the future. I certainly don't know the specifics of what's going to go on in my own life, but I want to tell you that despite the fact that there are preachers out there who have taken a big blank walls and drawn out complete charts about how everything is supposed to roll out in the future, I don't find the scriptures giving that kind of specific information. 
I want to say that I totally appreciate their zeal for the things of God. I appreciate the longing to know. I appreciate the earnestness that comes with this anticipation of the coming of Christ. And I have to admit, I could use a little bit of an infusion of Jesus is coming back anytime. But don't believe anybody who says they've got it all figured out. There are no dates and times in this book. There are only signs for us to watch for, indicators that the time is drawing near. But listen, we know from the scriptures that not even the angels know the time of his coming. And so for someone to presume upon the scriptures, upon the apocalyptic passages, upon the prophetic word that we have here, for someone to presume upon all of that and say, hey, I know exactly that this particular thing that happened on this particular date is exactly the fulfillment of this particular scripture. Listen, I'm standing far back from that going, you know what? You may in fact be true. You might be right. That may in fact be the thing that God's rolling out. But I can't see anywhere in the scripture that's compelling me to hang my hat on that thing. I want to lock myself down on the things that I can know for sure from the scriptures. And a lot of people are chasing after maybe this is this and maybe this is that and, and, and speculating about things in the future. And their life right now is a mess and is far from the holiness of God. And what I see time and time again in the apocalyptic passages of the scripture is this. Something awesome is going to happen. It's amazing. And when it does, you as the followers of Christ are not going to miss it. If you truly love Christ. And what is absolutely certain about the coming of these last things. Two words. The whole, the whole sermon is wrapped up in two words. You know what it is? Be ready. Be ready. Be in a place where when God looks down on what you're doing when he comes, he just looks down and says, well done, good and faithful servant. Man, I entrusted so much to you and you were so faithful with it. Listen, that's the place we need to be at, not trying to figure out what the date and time is. But God has not forgotten his promises to his people. I, I don't know exactly what this is all going to look like, but I have some pretty strong indications in chapter 11 that God has got some kind of a plan for the nation of Israel, for the people called the Jewish people. Now, some people would look at all of this, and as they read through this, I think it's pretty clear, but chapter 11, verse 1, Paul's asking the question that we're asking, has God rejected his people? Has God discarded Israel? Paul answers the question, by no means. Well, great, we've answered the question. Let's close in prayer, Right? Well, as you begin to read the, the verses that follow here, it's very clear that Paul's talking about a remnant of people at that very time who were of Jewish extraction, who were from the nation of Israel, but who now embraced Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. They recognized him as their Messiah. And Paul talks through all that. I myself am an Israelite. You see, don't you get it? Gentile audience who's reading this letter. God hasn't rejected Israel because he hasn't rejected me. I'm a Jew and I've embraced Jesus Christ as my Messiah. God's calling out a remnant. I myself am an Israel, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. God's calling together people who are his elect, who God has chosen, who have embraced him and drawing them into the relationship with him. God hasn't rejected his people. In the first part of chapter 11, it's very clear that Paul's talking about 
believing Jews who are just part of a one here and two here and a family over here. And in the grand scheme of things, the number of people who are ethnically of Jewish persuasion, of, of Jewish ethnic origin, who are followers of Jesus Christ today, that number is very small. It is a remnant. And that's who Paul's talking about in the first part of this chapter. Other people would object and say, hey, you know what, Todd? I know Galatians 6.16, and you might just write down that reference. In Galatians 6.16, Paul talks about the church being the Israel of God. And some people want to dismiss this whole passage as just being, you know what? All Paul's talking about is the church. He's talking about the Israel of God. And in a very real way, let me acknowledge the church is indeed the Israel of God. We can't escape what the scripture says here. The church is the Israel of God, but not in its full and complete form. And just because we're the Israel of God, just because we're fulfilling the covenants today, does not mean that God has fully rejected his people and will not in the future have some kind of plan for his people. And we'll get to more of that in just a few moments. I know that God has not forgotten his promises. There will come a time, uh, verse 25 says, when the fullness of the Gentiles is completed and realized I don't fully know what the fullness of the Gentiles is. I don't know when that's going to be fulfilled or if it already has been. I just know that today God seems to still be working primarily with Gentiles. So clearly it hasn't happened yet. When that comes, God once again is going to turn his attention, at least in part, to draw a remnant of Jews back to a relationship with him. Well, they'll recognize him as Messiah. This will be a spiritual awakening that in some fashion will sweep the Jewish people. Now, before we move from this, knowing that God has not forgotten his promises to his people, I need you to see a verse that's a little later on in the chapter. Again, it's a verse that I've prayed about here and one that we just read, verse 29. You have this underlined in your Bible yet, Ken? Uh, verse 29. Get that one underlined. Not just Ken, all of you. Verse 29, for the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. I mean, that's amazing, right? Knowing that God has not forgotten his promises. The gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. It means that God isn't changing his mind about anything. God, God isn't reversing anything he said before. God intends to fulfill absolutely everything he said. God made some promises to Abraham. He made some promises to Moses. He reiterated those things to David. Listen, God promised some very specific things to the people called the Jews. The promises of God, the gift and calling of God is irrevocable. You know what that word means? irrevocable it's from the same word family as the word repentance now repentance is a really good thing repentance is a really good thing that's what I thought repentance is a really good thing repentance means to turn it means that I'm going in the wrong direction I've got a sinful life that I'm leading and I'm heading away from God I have no no relationship with him at all. Repenting means that I turn from going this direction and I'm turning and I'm going now towards God. I turn, that's repentance. I agree with God that my way's the wrong way and I'm gonna go his way. That's repentance, it's turning. So same word, well that's a really good thing for us. Listen, the promises of God, the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. God's not repenting of the things that he said. God's not turning away from the things he said. God's gonna keep his promises. We can rest in that completely. He isn't changing anything. He isn't turning from what he said he would do. God's keeping his promises. 
How many people are excited about that? Amen? You excited about God keeping his promises to you? So I think sometimes we get into a bad place. We start to think that God's abandoned us and forgotten us. It might seem like it's unusual to speak of trusting God when we're talking about God's relationship to the people of Israel, but this is where it's driven right home to us. We can't possibly have any assurance that God's going to keep any promise to us if he doesn't keep his promises to Israel. I have to tell you that Paul's one of the most organized writers we have in the entire scriptures. He's a Western thinker. He, he logically sets up his arguments in a way where there's a premise and a proposition and he builds his argument. And, and, and this is why the church today in North America loves Paul's letters so much and yet reads the book of Hebrews and goes, I don't get it. Okay? Hebrews not written by Paul. It's not as organized. It's not as well laid out. It's hard to kind of figure out. But listen, Romans is a theologically precise book that lays argument upon argument. And so we always have to ask ourselves when we're studying the scriptures, if we're studying chapters 9 through 11, what's really important to ask ourselves is what came in chapters 1 through 8? Why is Paul saying this now? This isn't just some kind of like isolated little article. Oh yeah, by the way, let me tell you about this. That's very much Peter. It's not Paul. So why do we have this? Why is this question being raised? Well, look at the promises. Look back to chapter 8 with me. Look at some of the things that Paul has just said in chapter 8. Listen, if, if chapter 8 is not your favorite chapter in all of the scriptures, it has to be on the top five list. This is like an amazing chapter of God's word. Look at verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He set us free from sin. Oh, really? But is he going to keep his promises to Israel? Because I'm not sure I can be believing this unless he keeps his promises to Israel. Do you see where I'm going? Do you understand what Paul is saying here in the text? Look at uh, verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. I could use some help. How many weak people here could use a little help from the Holy Spirit this morning? Totally need it. We do not know what to pray for as we ought. How many times have you gotten down on your knees and you don't know what to pray for and you just kind of go, God, help me. Okay, look at the promise that comes. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Paul, that's fantastic. I love hearing you say that. But if God doesn't keep his promises to Israel, how can I trust that this is really going to happen? How can I trust that the Holy Spirit's going to be there to strengthen my prayers, to make me strong when I'm weak? Verse 28, you probably all know this verse. See, we know that all things, that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Oh, really? Boy, do I want to hang my hat on that promise. Everything's going to work out. But you see, if God doesn't keep his promises to Israel, how do I know that God's going to keep his promise to me? Verse 30, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. God, how do I know you're going to do this if you don't keep your promise to Israel? Verse 31, if God be for us, who can be against us? I got a lot of people against me. I got a lot of things warring against me. How can I know God? How can I know unless you keep your promises to Israel? Verse 37, Man, we're just ramping up. This chapter has so many crescendos. Verse 37, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
God, please. Keep your promises to Israel so that I know you're going to keep your promises to me. For I'm sure, God, I so much want to be sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. How many people need that today? God, keep your promises to Israel so that I can trust you. Here's the second thing. You see, I can trust God's perfect plan because I know that God always makes grace available. We're back in chapter 11 and we see God pouring out grace. It's always about grace. We've talked about that already in these messages. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew, verse 2. The whole story about Elijah. Grace poured out. God says to him, I'm, I'm preserving a remnant of people. There's always a remnant. In the midst of the people who are broadly called, and we need to understand this right now, God broadly calls the nation of Israel his people. He broadly calls the church his people. We are the people of God gathered here today. Now, I don't know every one of your hearts. Some of you are sitting here today wishing you were not here. True. There are people right now who wish they were somewhere else, almost anywhere else. There are people here wishing they were in a dentist chair rather than being here. And yet today, you're gathered here in this place as the church. You're part of the church here today. But in the midst of this room, there are people who are identifying themselves with the church who are not the true church. They are not followers of Christ. There is amongst us here today a remnant of people. We could blow that out even larger and say, uh, largely the West is considered uh, the Christian West. There is a history amongst our people uh, Europeans and Europeans who have moved to North America and other parts of the world like Australia, uh, that this is the Christian West. This is Christendom. Uh, this is what belongs to Christ. And yet we know within that there are denominations and there are churches and there are people who would call themselves Christians who are not. God gathers to himself from the scriptures we read here by his grace, God gathers to himself a remnant of people who truly believe. A smaller group of people who are passionate for the things of Christ, who are destined to spend eternity with him. They are truly his followers. And it is by his grace, God makes that grace available to us, that we might be part of that remnant. This is what God is doing. He talks about Elijah thinking he was the only one. Am I the only one? God says, no, don't worry about it. There, um, there are... Uh, 7,000 men, verse 4, who have not bowed the knee. Uh, they're still faithful to me. Verse 5, so too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. When Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking, Israel was seeking the wrong thing, the elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. Uh, the vast majority of people deciding that Jesus wasn't their Messiah. He didn't fit their picture of what that was going to look like. They had 
a zeal, but in the wrong thing. They had a righteousness, but it was by their own standard. They had a belief, but they weren't believing the right things. God gave them a spirit of stupor, verse 8 says, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And we see that in the Jewish people today. David says, let their table become a snare and a trap. A stumbling block. Do you remember this back to chapter 9, verse 33? A stumbling block. Who's the stumbling block? It's Jesus Christ. And a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and, and bend their backs forever. Anyone who entrenches themselves in an attitude that Jesus Christ is not who he said he is. Listen, this is their, this is their fate. God hardens their heart. The spirit of stupor. Eyes darkened. Their backs bent and they go after all kinds of things in this world think they, thinking they can satisfy themselves and they can't. There's no satisfaction apart from Jesus Christ and God pours out his grace. You know what grace is, right? We've defined it many times. Undeserved and unearned favor. It is God looking down on us through no work of our own and saying, I'm pleased with you and I'm going to give you some things that are going to give you life. That's favor. That's grace, undeserved, unearned favor from God. God has given it to his people, Israel, and he's giving it to his people, the church. God's grace, it was God's grace that chose King David, chose long before he was king, chose him as a shepherd boy. Thus, this symbol is in our auditorium to remind us as we hear this teaching that it is by God's grace that he picked this unlikely young man to be the king of Israel and to be the first in the line that would produce the Messiah, Jesus Christ, thus the cross. These are symbols of grace to us, undeserved, unearned favor. David did nothing to earn God's favor. God chose him. I can trust God's perfect plan because he's pouring out his grace today. In fact, God's making it available to every single person here. God's looking for his true church. God's looking for his people. He makes grace available in this place today. If you're not a follower of Christ today, if you haven't received that grace for him, from him, why haven't you? Why wouldn't you do it now? Why wouldn't you say, you know what, I've heard enough of the sermon God's spirit is on me. I'm going to pray right now and say, Jesus, I want you to be the Lord and Savior of my life. I need your grace. I need the forgiveness of sins. I, I want to be part of the remnant that you're working with. You Go ahead and do that. We're going to move on and see what else the text has to say to us here. As we talk about trusting God's perfect plan, we know that we can do that, thirdly, because I know God's plans often involve hardship. God's plans often involve hardship. We understand that, right? We understand how quickly we can kind of get angry with God or questioning God in the midst of trials. We see that Israel has been going through a terrible trial. Verse 11 tells us again that they stumbled. I asked, did they stumble in order that they might fall? Is this a permanent condition? Did Israel stumble that they would be flat on their faces for all eternity, away from God and no relationship with him? What does Paul say? By no means. 
Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Also, like the good part about Israel completely destroying their relationship with God is that the Gentiles get it. Really? Is that all they get out of it? Just the satisfaction that's not really satisfaction of knowing someone else got the thing that we should have? I'm supposed to be happy with that? No, you see, the point in verse 11 is that this would make Israel jealous. Well, what's the point of making them jealous? When you're jealous of something, what do you want? You want the thing that you're jealous of. I see that my neighbor has something. I'm jealous of that. I want it. I see that a friend has something. I, I want that thing. Israel had something. The Gentiles now have it. A relationship with God, his special working. Israel's now laying there on the ground, having stumbled over Jesus Christ, looking up at the Gentiles with the thing that they have, saying, I'm really jealous of that. I want it too. Verse 12, now if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, listen to this now, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Paul's begin, beginning to give us the hope, a sense that there's a future. Think about it. Imagine what it's going to be like when we reintegrate Israel back into the thing that God is doing. He reminds them, I'm speaking to you Gentiles in as much as then I'm an apostle to the Gentiles. I'm speaking to you because I'm, I'm working with Gentiles. I magnify my ministry in order that somehow make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them, the remnant. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? God goes on to say, listen, Gentiles, God's yet, yet got a future for the Jews. He's going to draw them back in. Israel's been going through this now. They've, they've been flat on the ground for some 2,000 years, just a little bit shy of that. You see, the, the recompense for rejecting Christ didn't really happen for 40 years Jesus was crucified and resurrected sometime in the early 30s A.D. But it wasn't until A.D. 70 that things really went badly, where Israel truly stumbled and was rejected by God. For the next 40 years after the time of Christ, they went on being Israel, living in the land and, and, and worshiping at the temple and doing all the things that the Jews uh, did under the ceremonial aspects of the law. But there was an increasing rebellion and revolts that were going on against Roman rule. The Jews continued to chafe under the Caesars. And in AD 70, the Caesar had had enough. And he sent in his legions and they flattened Jerusalem and they burned and razed the temple. It was over. The Jews were scattered. And within a few years, another kind of last desperate attempt to revolt resulted in the legions completely crushing. Hundreds of thousands of Jews were murdered by the Romans. And the Jews were scattered over the face of the earth for the next 1,900 years. They stumbled over Jesus. And they found themselves outside of God's plan and scattered as a people. This is the hardship that Israel is having to endure. Imagine now two millennia of waiting for God to act. We can't handle a trial for 24 hours. 
We don't want anything to go on for a period of days, not a week, a month. God, I've been going through this for a whole year. It's nothing. It really isn't. Not compared to this. You think about what those 2,000 years have been like. Hatred for the Jews, no matter where they've lived. been maligned and persecuted throughout history. They've endured hardship and trial such as no other people have ever endured. Anti-Semitism is rooted right here in our own communities. It's here. They continue to bear the hardship and weight of a decision made so many years ago. And God's plans for me often involve hardship. I was talking to a friend this week who's going through a tremendous trial. He's been going through it really for three years. It started out as being something really great and it turned really sour. It's crushed his spirit in some ways. It's been a difficult time. He said to me on the phone, reminding me of something that one of our leaders in Harvest often says. God never wastes a trial. God never wastes a trial. God uses everything in our lives to bring about his good and his purposes in us. God's not that concerned that you be happy in this very moment. God's not that concerned that he just pour out abundance upon abundance and blessing upon blessing and here's more gifts and here's all the things that are just gonna make you happy. And Oh, how easy it is to lift our hands and praise God Sunday after Sunday and to say how good he is in our small group meetings when God's just pouring it out in good things to us, right? God's much more interested in some other things in our lives less interested in our temporal happiness and how many things we own, much more interested in things like faith and endurance and patience and joy and kindness and gentleness and building these things into our lives. Those are the things that God wants us. Those are the things that we need to be rich in. And if it is necessary for us to go through hardship to find those things rooting in our lives, then God be praised for that. Because I can trust him. I can trust him even though I'm going through hardships. It's God's way of working. God never wastes a trial. I can trust God's perfect plan. Finally, let's just quickly look at this. I know that my perspective is limited. I can trust God's perfect plan because I know that my perspective is very limited. While we were in Israel this past spring, we had a day where we went up into the Golan Heights, land that Israel seized during one of the wars uh, from Syria. We had the opportunity to drive through very lush farmlands and to see the prosperity of the land up in that area. We drove right along within meters of the Syrian border, the lines of demarcation that were written after the war and the UN checkpoints that are all along 
We even drove along the road and waved to some Pakistani soldiers who are part of the UN delegation guarding the border. Apparently in the Western media, on the very same day that we were driving all through the north of Israel and up in the Golan Heights, the Western media was reporting about troop movements by the Syrians. We received some desperate emails from people here saying, don't go anywhere near that place. And like, we're right up here. We didn't see anything. There was nothing going on. The Israeli media wasn't reporting it. I don't know if they were scrambling jets to kind of take a look or whatever, or putting their satellites over there. We don't know what's going on behind the scenes. I just know that we didn't see anything. And uh, we were going all up through the Golan and appreciating all that was going on up there and what seems to be the evident hand of God of blessing on that land. Of course, around that same period of time and in the weeks and months that have followed, we know that the uh, Israeli prime minister has, even hinting, hint, has been hinting at giving back some of the occupied territories to Syria and to Jordan. It's remarkable to some people who are followers of Jesus Christ and who follow closely what's going on in Israel and love Israel. It's remarkable to some of these people who have given themselves maybe a little bit too much to these things to think about some of the occupied lands that God gave to Israel going back to, the, to Arab countries. And I was thinking to myself, do, do I really think that if the prime minister of Israel negotiates some kind of contract with the Arabs to give back some of the land, that somehow God's going to be surprised by that? Oh no, God says, as he reads the paper. <laughs> Look what they've done. I'm going to have to change my plans a little bit here. You know what, I'm... I'm perfectly assured that if the prime minister gives back the Golan Heights, gives back portions of the West Bank and pulls back settlements, that if he arranges something with the Palestinians for increased rule over their own country, so I'm perfectly assured that God's not gonna be taken surprised by that, that he is sovereign over all of these things, and that I've got this little Barry Ontario 2007 perspective on things that's really kind of limited. I mean, even if I go to the CNN website, it's still really limited. Understand that, right? And, and God understands it all. And he knows his plan. And I can trust him. You see, the challenge here, as we see from the scripture, is that there's one thing that clouds my perspective. We talked about it last week. Look at verse 17. Paul continues to talk about Gentiles and Israel and how the whole relationship and the whole thing we're trying to figure out here. But if some of the branches were broken off, that's the Jews, broken off, right? We break the branches off this tree. The tree is God. We're the branches grafted in. Some branches broken off. These are Jews who are part of the people of God. I'm breaking them off. They're laying there on the ground having stumbled over Jesus Christ. We're grafting in Gentile branches. It's amazing, I know. They share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. Do not be, look what it says here. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. He's now warning his Gentile readers. We're grafted into the tree. We're looking down on the ground at these branches that have been cut off, laying there. They're Jewish branches. And we're kind of going, <laughs> we're in the tree now. And you're not. And this arrogance and pride that wells up inside of us 
the same arrogance and pride that the Jewish people had towards the Gentiles prior to the coming of Christ. And Paul's warning, he's warning through the rest of the verses in that section, don't be arrogant. Our perspective is clouded by our arrogance. So careful about this. Look at verse 20. You can perfectly figure out how to get rid of the arrogance, how to get rid of the pride. End of verse 20. Do not become proud, but stand in awe. Stand in awe. Stand in awe of what? Stand in awe of who? Stand in awe of God. Stand in awe of the God of grace. Stand in awe of the God who's got this whole thing perfectly worked out and my perspective so limited is so far from what God's perspective and plan is. Awe clears up the arrogance. Arrogance clouds my perspective, but awe clears up all the arrogance. I stand in awe of him and worship him. Look at the way Paul ends these three chapters. He's giving a theology of the place of Israel amongst the people of God. And he closes off these chapters. Verse 33, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen, the text says. How awesome is our God. Inscrutable are his ways. Unsearchable his judgments. In other words, like Job at the end of this whole incident that he has with losing everything. God says to Job, who are you to question me? Sit down, Job. I'm going to tell you a thing or two about who I am and about my plan, and you would do well to trust me. You know what, Job? I've got it all worked out. The promises of God to Israel will be fulfilled. He's going to keep his promises. They're irrevocable. It's not going to change his mind. Because of that, you can trust God's promises today, no matter where you're at, no matter what circumstance of life you're going through. Whatever it is, you can trust God. You need some help with that? That's why the church of Jesus Christ exists. We can come alongside one another, affirm these things from God's word and one another's lives, and stand with one another through the trials, through the difficulties and challenges we face. That together, every one of us can know that God never wastes a trial. God never wastes a hardship. He's always using these things to bring us into a more full relationship with him. I trust we're all encouraged by these words. And next week on Labor Day weekend, uh, we're going to wrap up this series. And uh, we've kind of covered most of the verses in these three chapters, but we're going to go back and ask some specific questions and and, um, and then we're going to ask a question, what does the church do now in light of all of that? 
What's our response to Jews? What's our response to Israel today? We're going to answer those questions next week. But I want some help with the sermon. Are you ready to give me some help with it? I don't have a lot of time to study next week. So um, I'm just kidding. So I just need your help, though. I know a lot of you have questions and comments you'd like to make on all of this. And so we've got a new email address, questions at harvestberry.ca. Got it? Questions at harvestberry.ca. And uh, you just need to send in your question or your comments. And I'm going to do my best to integrate all of that into next week's message. It might be three or four hours long, but that's all right. We're going to just do our best to get through the material and answer every question. Just kidding, Sam. All right? It's not going to be that long. All right. So why don't we, uh, why don't we pray right now? And uh, we are going to celebrate the Lord's table together in just a few moments. God, I thank you so much for your abundant love for us. God, we know for certain today those of us who are the followers of Christ, we know for certain that we have the assurances of promises kept. You will do what you said you will do. You are who you say you are. And fathers, we come to this table now to celebrate the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ, to celebrate his death, knowing that it was through his death that we found the forgiveness of sins. And we have life eternal with you and life abundant here and now. We pour out our hearts in gratitude to you. I pray, God, that there would not be a person here who has any enmity between themselves and you, but, God, that they would reconcile that now, pleading for the blood of Christ to be poured out on them, the forgiveness of sins found. And God, I pray there wouldn't be a person here who has anything with any other person. But God, insofar as it's possible with them, they've sought to be reconciled. Or Father, that you would determine, cause them to determine in their hearts right now to reconcile whatever relational challenge might be there right now. God, that every one of us would be able to take the Lord's table right now with clean and pure hearts. Pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.